Hello, and thanks for listening to Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Pirates and smugglers of the Treasure Coast authors Patrick and Patricia Mesmer join me tonight. For hundreds of years, colorful characters and criminals used a myriad of coves and inlets along the Treasure Coast for illicit commerce. From the early days of privateer Henry Jennings to the notorious prohibition exploits of the Ashley Gang, these sandy shores have been a refuge for those looking to trade on the dark side of the law. Legendary tales of Don Pedro Gilbert, Spanish Marie, and Al Capone all contribute to the lore of a region that is home to buried treasure and family crime empires. Join historians Patrick and Patricia Mesmer on a journey through the Sunshine State's shadowy past. Mr. and Mrs. Mesmer, thanks for joining me. For those not in the know, what is considered the Treasure Coast of Florida? Treasure Coast of Florida is an area that stretches from Sebastian, Florida, on the East Coast, down to Jupiter Inlet, where the lighthouse is. That is called the Treasure Coast of Florida. How did you get that name? Um, the Treasure Coast of Florida was actually a couple of uh, reporters in the 1960s uh, named it. Because they call it the Treasure Coast mainly because of the 1715 uh, fleet disaster that happened. And uh, there were 12 tre- treasure ships that were wrecked in a hurricane off the coast, uh, all in one storm. These are it's Spanish the, ships, the worst, right? They were Spanish ships that were heading for, uh, they were heading for Spain, sailing up through the Bahama Channel. Uh, loaded with treasure for the queen as uh, King Philip V of Spain had just gotten married and they, she refused to consummate the marriage until she got the dowry. And uh, so the, <laughs> I didn't know the that. Ships hadn't, yeah. The ships hadn't left for years because of a war, the war of Spanish succession. So they were way overdue and, Spain really needed those ships. That's how, why there was so much treasure on those ships. Because, uh, like I say, uh, the dowry was on board, and they traveled in big groups like that called flotillas as a, uh, as a guard against piracy. Piracy was rampant in the Caribbean, so they would, they would sail together in big fleets. But they had no way of knowing um, about the hurricanes like we do today. They didn't have Doppler radar or anything like that. Yeah, so they so. thought safety in numbers from to protect them from enemies, but there's nothing re- yep. you can really do against a hurricane. Not really, and uh, that's what hit them. So they were they were all wrecked on the shoreline, and there were there were 1,500 people that drowned, and a thousand people stranded on the beach in July. Of, two t- of 1715, and July down here is pretty brutal in South Florida, especially on the beach in the summertime because of the no and mosquitoes and everything else. Uh, there's no water, no food, and there's no cover from the blazing sun. So a thousand people stranded on the beach with nowhere to go. The nearest uh, settlement was St. Augustine to the north, or Havana, Cuba, way down in the Caribbean. So they were they were in bad shape. And uh, what ended up happening was a lot of the people just 
died as as the days went on uh they just the conditions were too much they didn't have any supplies and they would have to bury bury people up to their necks in the sand to guard them against the uh sand fleas and noceums mm. and so, uh, would you describe the noceums they're like uh getting attacked by the smallest fly with if you go out there mm-hmm. on a summer night right before right before dusk uh, all of a sudden you'll get this feeling that you're being attacked by a sweater of stabbing pins. Yep. And uh, the noceums are, are the smallest insect with the biggest teeth. Well, they, they, would send, they sent out uh, people to get help. They went to St. Augustine. They had to march all the way up the beach. Um, it took weeks to get help. Like they sent, pe- they sent boats south to Cuba and they sent people up the beach to St. Augustine. And as they learned about the wrecks, they learned what a financial disaster it was. Because, like I say, the ships were loaded with silver and, and gold and emeralds and China from the Orient and all kinds of stuff. So if, if the Spanish soldiers in St. Augustine saw survivors from the wrecks, they would immediately search them to see if they were stealing money. Um, so it was pretty messy, but it took like, a, took like several weeks for the rescue to be made of these people. And a lot of them, like I said, died on the beach there. So they buried them on the beach. And you can imagine what the, you know, with the wrecks in shallow water like that sticking up, what a mess that was. It was 30 miles of shipwrecks. And you can imagine what the sharks alone were like, the sharks, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was pretty gruesome time for those people. Yeah. So the- what happened, you know, after the rescues were made, then the Spanish sent the uh, salvage teams to try to get some of that treasure back. These, these salvage teams. So they, they went down there and they set up a salvage camp at Sebastian Inlet. And they uh, went out there to dive the wrecks. And you can imagine what that was like. They, uh, they didn't have any scuba gear or anything like that. So they would, they would get native divers from Cuba and the Caribbean and they would roll them out there and they'd send them down to hold their breath and swim down and scoop up as much treasure as they could. And if one of them got the bends or drowned, no big deal. They just bring another one in and they use uh, diving bells. And the problem was, that a lot of the treasure was inside of the wrecks. They were inside of the chest, so they were hard to get at. But through uh, through their determination and hard work, they ended up actually getting a good chunk of the money back. Uh, they got a lot of silver that way. But they, they claimed to have gotten 90% of the treasure back. But the truth of the matter was that the actual manifest on the ships were not accurate because the king of Spain, it was called the king's fifth. He got 20% tax rate. So as you can imagine, there was a huge amount of smuggling that went on. So they would, they would falsify the manifest and there would actually be a lot more silver on board, a lot more treasure on board than they reported. So they don't know how much treasure was out there and is still out there today. Yeah. 
and but this treasure also attracted pirates to the area. Well, what what happened after that was uh, that the, in in uh, New Providence Island in Nassau, the governor found out when these wrecks happened. It was like a dinner bell that went off, because like I say, that the War of Spanish Succession had just ended. It was a twelve year war, and a lot of the English Navy sailors were released without jobs. They had no jobs. So a lot of them were used to sailing in the Caribbean. They just went pirate. So a lot of them convened in uh, in the Caribbean islands, like New Providence. And the governor of New Providence found out about the wrecks, and he commissioned a, a privateer. A privateer is a, actually a, a paid pirate by a government to prey on ships of other nations difference between a privateer and a pirate so he gave henry jennings letters of mark or permission to go to sebastian which was called the palmer de ais and secure those wrecks so henry jennings was a pirate and he, he had three ships he had another guy named john wills with him and Charles Vane. Charles mm-hmm. Vane is a very famous uh, pirate. And they they went there and they attacked that Spanish salvage camp and took all, a lot of the treasure that they had gathered. And that was the first pirate incursion in on the treasure coast in this in that area for those wrecks. Yeah, and you brought Charles Vane in. Uh, if anyone doesn't know Charles Vane, really interesting pirate, and I can't remember the governor who came into Nassau to, and even Benjamin Horningold kind of you know knelt down to him in a way. Uh, Benjamin Horningold, another pirate, um, maybe Blackbeard's mentor. Um, I've heard some people say. Yeah. Um, yep. But Charles Vane wouldn't quit. He tried to fight the British Navy when they came, or the English Navy when they came in, and even escaped out the other side of uh, the harbor. Uh, yeah, there that in the was. I think you're talking about Woods Rogers. Yes, came in Woods to get Rogers. rid of all the pirates. Yes, and uh, yeah, Vane uh, Vane was a bad guy, man, and he did not want to give up because the, like you said, uh, the King of England offered to pardon to all the the piracy was so rampant in the Caribbean at that time. He offered them a pardon if they swore off piracy, they would get their freedom, and a lot of them did that. And Benjamin Hornigold was one of them. He became a pirate hunter. But Charles Vane never quit. And like you said, he was escaping the harbor and he sent out a fire ship. And it, it was pretty pretty crafty dude, Vane was. Yeah, he's just uh, really interesting to read about, especially that whole pirate republic, really, that was down in uh, the Bahamas for a while. It's just interesting history to me. And I've always, you know, even before the Pirates of the Caribbean movies came out, I've always enjoyed learning about pirate history as well. But uh, so let me yep. ask you, let me ask you, Patrick and Patricia, this is the second book you've written together. Um, what's it like what, for each of you, uh, your interest in history, pirates and the paranormal? Um, how did y'all how did each of you come to that interest? And what's it like working together in both tours and on books? Well, it's, um, I used to tell people to get in a canoe, and if you could get from point A to point B, you probably had a strong marriage. <laughs> if you can write two books and stay happily married, then you got a good marriage. Um, 
as far as, far as the paranormal is when I was 11 years old, um, my dad went to work and didn't come home. And he had massive coronary. I was the last one to see him alive. I'm sorry. And um, I just wanted to make sure that he was okay. So I kept asking, just show me a sign. Please show me. And I, you don't know me, but I'm tenacious. So I kept it up, kept it up. And I was sitting on my bed, and I'm going to quote my age here. And the the record player began to play for like maybe five seconds. The needle came, put, went on the record and played. Get the, you know, one out of me at 11. And then I went and I unplugged it and did it again. And uh, that's when I knew that was my dad telling me he was okay. And that started my vision in the paranormal from then on. Uh, Pat and I met in our, well, I was late 20s late 20s, and um, he was my skeptic. He was my debunker. He still is. Um, as far as the tour and the books go, well, it was the local people that really kind of called us out because Pat is a historian, and I've always had, um, well, I've had, since we've been married, mesmerized paranormal investigations. And they said, why don't you guys think about doing a ghost tour? I mean, that's what you guys always go to them. And Patrick started doing a lot of history in our little town of Port Salerno, which is in our Treasure Coast, um, goes to the Treasure Coast. And we could not believe the amount of history um, that was in this small, tiny town that we lived in. So myself and Patrick and a couple of other people that had um, paranormal investigators went out and just kind of went to a couple of the sites. And once we went to the couple of the sites, um, we realized that we could get activity on either EVPs, which is the voice recorders, or the um, EMF readings, which is electric. Um, it's something changes in your energy field meter. We, um, so there started the ghost tour. It goes way back to we were going to be with another ghost hunting group for the first time. We never kind of went outside of our own group, but we did. And they took us to um, Riverbend Park in Jupiter. Well, for, I'm not going into that story, but it was a kind of a bust. But there was a speaking series the next day, and Patrick went to it and met a gentleman named Steve Carr, um, who's an amateur archaeologist and a historian. And they just hit it off. And then when I met him, all three of us hit it off. Um, and we really fell in love with the land and Riverbend Park. We also, they also had found um, artifacts. And we were afraid that this was going to not be respected. Um, and we, the Luxahatchee, Luxahatchee Battlefield Preservationists, we were, we were originally, one of the original numbers, we're not, not no longer say, um, really fought. And there was, there was uh, probably about 17 of us. Mm-hmm. And we fought and, and we got our voice and we got our voice. And now, you know, a large part of that park is now called Luxahatchee Battlefield Park which means no one can ever do anything to that park. It, it's sanctioned as a battlefield. And that was a piece of history coming alive. Wow, what well, a way to protect history, to too. I mean, your exactly. love of ghosts, Patricia, and Patrick, your love of history came together to save a very important piece of Florida history and national history, too. That's amazing. Yep. So, Pat, had, we both, all you know, because the three of us just had such a love for that land that we were trying to get the kids to read the real history, you know, that there were, there were two Seminole Indian Wars fought on that land. And I guarantee you, most of the children, if we asked them today, would not even know what that was. 
So Pat um, Pat wrote a book, and I helped with the paranormal stuff, and it was it's historical fiction, and we did it so that the kids would actually see what our history was. Well, what wound up happening, the kids did like it, but the parents liked it too. So hence, here we go. Um, and that's kind of been one, two, three, four, almost five books later. That's wow. how it all started. Yeah, once you learn your local history, it's hard not to get the bug. I think. Yep. Absolutely. Um, people just don't think that Florida has a lot of history, which is so far from the truth. Um, like, like I said, this little teeny town of Port Salerno—it's amazing. Um, the history that's part of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, Saint Augustine alone—I mean, that's the oldest city in America, the oldest European. Uh, city. Yep. We love St. Augustine. We go there at least once a year. And uh, we also, um, we want to go to Charleston. I know Charleston's a great place, too. I haven't been there yet. I've well, been let to me Savannah. Know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to Cumberland. Yeah, we're going, we're actually going camping in a couple of weeks. We're going to Cumberland Island. We're going in South Georgia, which is a very strange place. And, uh, I'm gonna. My I have another book that I'm. We're writing, and it has Cumberland Island as a setting, in part of the book, uh, South Georgia. Well, I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about this book just for a sec. The newest book, uh, Pirates and Smugglers, because it's when I read it, it's not. It, it's not a book just about pirates and smugglers, which of course I've told you the pirates. You know, I've always loved that history, but it's also a book. Uh, regarding the general history, I think, of the Treasure Coast. And I say that because the relationship, um, you know, between the, <clears throat> you know, the pirate history uh, has a lot to do even going down to our early nation's history in a way. Um, so it, it tells you a lot about the the Native Americans who lived in the area, you have a lot of that in the book. Uh, you have a lot of history, you know, history of the early Spanish explorers in the book. So it is a really good overview, I think, too, uh, for people who uh, might be interested in uh, dipping their toes in early Spanish history, or excuse me, early Florida history. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I love like going back and and trying to imagine what Florida what our coast was like in the 15, 1600s. To me, it's fascinating to think about the, uh, you know, there were, there were millions of people here when Columbus supposedly discovered America, already millions of people here, you know, and I try to imagine what they were like and, and their relationships with the, their relations with the Spaniards, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it was interesting, too, to read. I was reading the book, and I don't want to give a lot away because I want people to also buy the book to read it. Um, but that dynamic of where, you know, you had the English pirates who were capturing, or privateers perhaps, who were uh, capturing Spanish ships and then putting them onto an island and saying the local natives would take care of them. You know, it's. It's it's that dynamic of where you know the natives were like, well, no, we are you know we're gonna take these people, and sometimes they would beat them, uh, kill them, or you know use them as slaves in their own society. Yeah, yep. They uh, there were some brutal brutal things that happened. Uh, Menendez was a quite a guy. 
and you know, and you remember the the one story in the book where Menendez went into a native village on the somewhere on the treasure coast of the 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 Indians were called the Ais or the Ais. You see, it's pronounced different ways in the, depending on which Spanish journal you read. Uh, I think a lot of the names of these native tribes were what the Spaniards heard. Like, who are you? The Ais or Ais or the Timaqua or it was based on like syllables. Like the, the Calusa Indians on the West Coast, the the king of the Calusa was named Carlos. So it was Calusa. Calusa you know, mm-hmm. but a corruption of the, of what the Spanish heard. That's what these tribes ended up being. But Menendez went into the Ais village and he noticed that there were a couple of Caucasians there, Spaniards that were being held prisoner. So that was when Menendez started to get, you know, show his true cruelty when they all sat around in a big party and Menendez looked around and they were in different groups and Menendez gave his signal of one, two, three claps. And after he clapped three times, all of his men pulled their knives out and killed the nearest native next to them, like brutally. And that didn't earn the Spanish any points no. you know, with the native people. So you have these you have these warring people. What gets me is the time spans that we're talking about here. Because my ancestors of European descent have only been in Florida for 500 years. That's how old St. Augustine is. But these people were here for thousands of years on our, you know, on our coast, all the way up to where you are and past. Thousands of years. Yeah. So, you know, whole cultures of people living on the beach. And down here in our area, those people, a lot of what they did was they were the original pirates. They were the original wreckers because there's always been shipwrecks along the coast of Florida all the way up to Georgia because of the uh, Gulf Stream. They used the natural current of the Gulf Stream for shipping back to Europe from the Caribbean. So they were the original pirates. They would raid ships and kill all the survivors and take the gold and silver from the ships and hoard it. They found a lot of treasure near Indian mounds, like burial mounds, where they had hidden the treasure because they knew that they could deal with the Spanish, that they knew that the Spanish weakness was silver. And they had great power over the Spanish if they had the silver. But most of these native people, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I never really had thought about until I read the book about how they, the natives would be, you know, a type of pirate, you know, when the Spanish would wreck along their coast. Yep. I mean, that's from the get-go in the book, and that's presented right at the beginning of the book, and it's just, uh, it really starts you, it kind of sets a tone for the book that you're going to learn something you did not know before you read the book, and it draws you in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I love reading like i'm a big fan of uh charles c mann who wrote uh, 1491 which is a story it's it was about pre-columbian uh north and south america before columbus and the the cultures that were here so that's why i like that that's why i like i study that part i'm fascinated with how it was 
you know, before before the Columbian Exchange began when Columbus landed. Yeah, and it's so hard that to was, find that information, too, to study that. Yeah. There's been some pretty good books written about it. Uh, God, it's called the Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond and fourteen ninety one by Charles C. Mann and fourteen ninety three by Charles C. Mann, where he talks about after Columbus. But uh, the coast of Florida, like our coast and the west coast, we have thirteen hundred miles of coastline, so it's always always been about smuggling and piracy here in down here in Florida because as you know it didn't even become a state until the 1840s and it's always been like this wild place down here during the Seminole Indian Wars where you know I talk about that in the book how the Seminole Indians were smuggled in weapons by the by the Cuban government and by the English yep. to fight against the the plantation owners to the north so you had the Seminoles always they always had better weapons for that reason because of smuggling yeah and they, you know they always smuggled slaves in slavery was you know always big yeah even into the you know speaking of smuggling because you do cover that in the book it, but piracy continued in the 1830s uh you learn about that in the book too on the coast far, but the smuggling and the smuggling of uh, the slave trade was another really fascinating part of the book too. And especially, you know, the great insight um, with the, I think were they, the called the black Seminoles, I believe in the book, um, the former yeah. slaves who fought with the Seminoles. Yep. Black Seminoles. They, they were uh, runaway slaves from plantations in the North. And they came down here into then Spanish Florida and the Spanish always used they ne- they outlawed slavery in a lot of their territories because they could use the the blacks as a, a buffer against any incurring you know enemies coming in. The the black Seminoles were the toughest people there were the Maroons, and Maroon history goes back hundreds of years. They were fighting for their lives. They if if they got captured. They would be sent back to a plantation in the South, even if they were born and raised in Florida. So they they were some of the toughest warriors the Seminoles had. But they were, technically, they were slaves as well. The Seminoles looked at them as slaves, but it was a different kind of slavery. It was more like an indentured servitude. They give them their own villages and they could raise their own crops and have their own thing. But when it came to fighting the whites, they would band together. Uh, the black Seminoles had a lot of advantages because they could speak the language and they knew how to do a lot of things from their years of domestic servitude. They knew how to grow things and build things. And they were just a, a very impressive people, the black Seminoles. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's neat to think about the fact that they brought a lot to the Seminoles. Which with Seminoles were uh, a mix of different tribes too, right? That had to come together. Yeah, they, Seminole is actually a, it's a blend of it's like the, what they call ethnogenesis, which is a lot of things mixed together. Seminole is a corruption of the word uh, cimarron, which is it's got a couple of meanings. The Taino Indians called it. It was a it meant flying arrow, 
and supposedly it's a corruption of the word cimarron, which means a runaway. So it was corrupted to Seminole. They're mostly uh, descended from the Creek people from your area, the mm-hmm. Creeks in South Carolina. That's what the, most of the Seminoles were. But, but there's other things in there like the 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 Tallahassee and the Yamasee and the Appalachee and just a mix of things and black slaves from the north. Yeah, so it was a big mix. Something that hasn't changed, I've noticed, is a little bit of a pirate spirit and smuggling along the Treasure Coast still, even to today. Yep. What is the, I know there, you know, is it, let's see, so uh, I'm guess I, I believe it's mostly, you know, drugs, narcotics, but are people being smuggled in as well? Yes. They just, uh, right after I, right after I put the book out, I found out about uh, a huge human smuggling ring that was busted right here on the Treasure Coast. Um, I didn't put that in the book, like the human smuggling today, because it doesn't really, it's not part of like the pirate and smuggler history, but it's there, man. And the human trafficking and smuggling is a real problem, and it still goes on today. Well, so the story of the Treasure Coast of Florida continues. Well, thanks again, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mesmer, I uh, had a great time, and I really enjoyed this book and the book that came out last year. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. Remember, you can find Patrick and Patricia's books online at arcadiepublishing.com or in your local bookstore. If your bookstore doesn't carry our books, ask them to. You can also find history books on all types of subjects on ArcadiaPublishing.com.